You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, as we once again continue our study, we are asking for your help. We begin each day by turning our attention to you and turning our lives over to you. And we take this class and we turn it over to you and ask for your Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts the truths of your word that we might be encouraged, but that we might also be able to represent Jesus as he wants us to. So Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's time for us to review once again what we've been talking about up to this point. As I mentioned, it is Thursday. We've been studying since Monday, and we've had a couple, three days of making some presentations. And yesterday, we continued our study of the imputed righteousness of Christ. We learned that when God declares a person righteous, He makes them righteous by the creative power of His Word. These are not just subtle semantic differences. They are fundamental to the truths of the Word of God and to our understanding of the message of righteousness by faith. We live in a world that can be very confusing. That's why we need to study the Word of God ourselves. We need to know what is in God's Word for ourselves. When you have someone who can say to you why what you're teaching is Catholic doctrine, and when you don't know that it's not, you can be confused. So we need to know what is biblical doctrine, what is the teaching of the Word of God, and then we need to be able to live by that as God intends for us to be able to. By His creative Word, Jesus wants to work in our hearts and lives. The statement from um, FLB, what's that whole? Faith I live by. I was trying to say that. Having Jesus, having made us righteous through imputed righteousness of Christ, God pronounces us just and treats us as just. He looks upon us as his dear children. We also studied how the righteousness of Christ is a living righteousness. We receive it by receiving him because it is in him. Those who see Christ in his true character and receive him into the heart have everlasting life. It is through the Spirit that Christ dwells in us, and the Spirit of God received into the heart by faith is the beginning of the life eternal. Desire of Ages 388. As we work through our understanding of what the Word of God is saying to us, we recognize that it is in receiving Him into the heart that it is the beginning of life eternal. So today, we want to continue our journey and our study. The righteousness of Christ, as we have presented it, is composed of imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness, for that's what the Bible tells us and the spirit of prophecy. In Review and Herald of June 4, 1895, not 1985, that would have been interesting, Ellen White said, the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. Now you're getting some repetition, but you know what? Repetition is a teacher. It begins to bring it into our minds and help it to helps us to become aware of what is being communicated. The righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. Justified, imputed sanctified, imparted. 
The first, she said, is our title to heaven. The second is our fitness for heaven. Both justification and sanctified, sanctification, imputed and imparted righteousness are by faith. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26, you have your Bibles? Acts chapter 26, we want to look at verses 17 and 18. Acts 26, 17 and 18. Aren't you thankful for the Bible? I was reading a story wonderful miracles of how God works and how a man went into a town to preach and there were lots of people there who wanted to hear the Word of God, but they only had two Bibles. And then somewhere, by the grace of God, they found a third one, but there were much many, many more people than that. Well, you all have a Bible. How grateful are we for that? This is what uh, Jesus said to Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish Make sure I'm in the right place. No, I'm not. I've got the wrong chapter here. Acts 26, 17. Get it right here. There we go. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I uh, now send you. Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are what? Sanctified by? In? Absolutely. Jesus made it clear when we get it from him through Paul. He makes it clear to us that sanctification is by faith in Jesus. Ellen White was clear about this when she said, Both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. And that's in Desire of Ages 300. And then in Selected Messages, she makes this statement, Then there is yet another work to be accomplished beyond justification. And that is of a progressive nature. So we're seeking today to try to understand what the Bible is seeking to tell us here and what Ellen White is communicating about this wonderful message of righteousness by faith as it relates to the experience of the imputed righteousness and the imparted righteousness of Christ. Continuing on, she says, the soul is to be sanctified through the truth. And this is also is accomplished through faith. So we're never going to get to a point, and we don't want to get to a point, we can't get to a point where we say, it was imputed to us, the righteousness was imputed to us, it was given to us, but now we're on our own, and now we're going to do it ourselves. It started with faith, but now it's our works. It's not biblical, right? It is faith all the way, from beginning to end. Faith in Christ Jesus. Continuing, she says, and this also is accomplished through faith, for it is only by the grace of Christ which we receive through faith that the character can be transformed. Boy, there's a lot right all in all of this. But I want you to note that Ellen White, not only does she clarify both justification and sanctification, are part of the righteousness of Christ, and both come through faith in Christ, but she also makes it clear that sanctification is a progressive work an ongoing work through which the character is transformed. So today, our title of our presentation is The Imparted Righteousness of Christ. Elder Howard, take us into the meat of our presentation today. Amen. Morning, everyone. I'd like to pause again briefly for a word of prayer. If you bow your heads, I say do so. Father in heaven, oh Father, these topics are at the heart of our experience 
as followers of Jesus. And we need to be taught by the Holy Spirit, not just intellectually, but, but practically, Lord. And we pray that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, would guide us in this study this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was just thinking, even while Elder, while Elder Snaman was, was sharing, that uh, going back to this statement here, that the righteousness by which we are justified is imputed, and the righteousness by which we are sanctified is imparted. The first is our title to heaven, the second our fitness for heaven. The first, imputed righteousness, justification is our title, not our fitness. Why isn't justification, we looked at it in scripture, justification is Christ speaks his word and it transforms the life and the presence of Christ comes into the believer, why wouldn't that be called our fitness for heaven also? You ever thought about it? Because when the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, when you first accepted Jesus at that moment, you stood in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But was it completely your choice to follow Christ all the time? If you're honest with yourself, you'll say, well, no, I, I, how many of you have stumbled since you've accepted Christ? Well, obviously, you didn't choose Christ all the time. There's something that needs to happen when we receive the righteousness of Christ, and that gets into this, this work of the imparted righteousness of Christ that we're talking about today. Now, yesterday, we studied imputed, and we studied that that's from the Greek word logizomai, whether it's translated imputed or counted or accounted or reckoned in those different ways, it's interesting, and I had never realized this as fully until just going through um, uh, this presentation. I like to build it on the biblical foundation. But when it comes to imparted righteousness, you will not find that term in any mainline translation. You will not find imparted righteousness in the Bible. You'll find the word imparted in the Bible. The word impart, I believe, appears, and I didn't have the exact, it's three or four times in the King James and it, none of it has to do directly with righteousness. Um, the idea, the word literally means to impart or bestow something as a gift to somebody. In Romans 1.11, Paul longs to impart spiritual gifts to his audience. In Ephesians 4.29, he counsels believers that they use their speech to impart grace to those listening. And finally, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, the apostle shares how glad he is to have been able to impart the gospel. Now, this isn't to say that imparted righteousness is not a biblical concept, but it's not a biblical phrase. Are you, are you with me so far? It's not a biblical expression. The word sanctify, however, sanctify, sanctified, sanctification, and similar words appear in the King James Version 137 times. And they're derived from the Greek word hag hagiadzo, a word that means to set something apart from that which is common. Now, I think a good verse that explains that is in John 17. If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to John 17. The idea of sanctify is setting something apart. Uh, sometimes we say sanctify means to make holy, and that's true in the sense of setting something apart from what is common. So it's setting apart as holy. But look at what Jesus says as he prays to his Father in John 17. I want you to think this through with me because this is going to be important in our study today. John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your what? Your word is truth. So sanctify them by your word, in essence, right? Sanctify or set them apart from common by your word. I'm just breaking that down. So here's my question to you. How does the Word of God set one person apart from another? My friend Ben here, let's say, how, how would the Word of God set me apart from Ben? Okay, somebody says, how much you take in. Hmm? Let's elaborate that. Take in, take in is subjective. Uh, yeah, because I can take in a lot. I don't necessarily want to follow it, but that, listen to me carefully. The only way the Word of God is setting me apart from Him is if I'm following what it says and He isn't. Right? How else is the Word setting a person apart? So when Jesus is praying, sanctify them, what He's letting us know is the process of sanctification comes through obedience to the Word. 
sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart by your word. Notice commenting on this, Ellen White makes this point. She says, oh, we looked at that one. That's not the one. Jesus prayed that his disciples might be sanctified through the truth and added, thy word is truth. Sanctification is not an instantaneous, but a progressive work as obedience is continuous. Now, I want to flesh this out a little bit more as we go, okay? It is so important. I'm going to tell you something. Talking about justification, the masses love talking about justification. Because justification is a work of a what? A moment, an instant. I believe in Christ. I'm justified. I stand before God just as if I'd never sinned. That's fantastic. We get into sanctification. That's where most of our discussions and arguments come from. Because sanctification is a work that involves me. It involves my choices. It reflects on how I live. And we walk away, many Seventh-day Adventists walk away with the idea that justification is what God does and sanctification is what God and me do. Because I have a part in it. Oh, mercy. I'm just trying to think time-wise. Now, I didn't have that. I'm going to refer you to a couple passages that have been transformative to me. One is in 1 Chronicles 29. When David offers sacrifice up to God in the, in, on the plain of Ornan. And, and, you know, the angel of God appeared. This is when David numbered Israel. And God sent judgments. And David sees an angel with a sword over Jerusalem. Do you remember this? And he realizes he's sinned. And he, so he goes and he pleads to God and he chooses to make sacrifice. And I guess Ornan saw the angel with a sword too. He knew something was up. And so he goes to David and he says, Look, I'll give you everything you need to sacrifice. Do you recall this story? What did David say to Ornan? Do you remember? I'm not going to sacrifice to God something that cost me nothing. And when he goes to God and he prays and he offers all these things, he says, Lord, what is it that I'm giving you? And then he says these words, all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Ellen White shared that in the little book Faith and Works and it clicked for me. We talk about, well, we can't be saved, but don't work too hard because, you know, if you get too much effort in there, it's going to be you and not God. What do you have to give God? Do I have effort I can give to God that didn't come from Him? What strength of body do I have? What strength of intellect do I have that I can give to God that He's like, hmm, where'd you get that from? Do you understand what I'm saying? It ought to be the foundation of our Christian faith that I have nothing to offer God. That's why I accepted Christ. So if subsequently... Once I've accepted Christ, Jesus says, now you need to obey. Am I going to say, well, I'm not going to do that. That would be of me. Wait a minute. I have nothing. Any obedience we give to God comes from who? Comes from Him. Comes from His strength and His power that He gives. This is why in the New Testament, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if indeed you did receive it, where's the boasting? We can't give to God anything that He hasn't already given us. That's why we don't pay tithe to God. We return it. <laughs> it was never ours. That's another topic. So, Jesus prayed. She says, sanctification is not an instantaneous, but a progressive work. It doesn't happen in an instant. It happens over time. And, and for many Seventh-day Adventists, the time takes longer than we wanted it to. Right? You're struggling with something in your life, and you're like, Lord, why don't I have victory yet? Maybe I'll never have victory. Maybe God's forsaken me. Maybe, and we get all these negative, maybe I'm not doing good enough. Progressive doesn't give a time limit. It's God's time limit, not yours. So if you're not there yet, that's not for you to worry about. <laughs> Whose job is it to get you from point A to point B? It's the Lord's job. Quit worrying about it. It's a progressive work as obedience is continuous. We continue to grow. Just as long as Satan urges his temptations upon us. How long is that going to be? Until he's gone. The battle for self-conquest will have to be fought over and over again. But by obedience, the truth will sanctify the soul. That's what Jesus was saying in John. That's her comment on that. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. In Romans chapter 1. That great gospel passage, why don't we look there quickly. 
Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the what? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Anybody ever given thought to that? I'm sure some of you have. From faith to faith. What does that mean? What does that imply right away? There's a little bit of a journey there. From one stage of faith to another, to one stage of growth to another. Notice, from faith to faith, as it is written. And he, he substantiates what he's saying by the scripture. He says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he said, that's the reason we know it's from faith to faith. Now, live is an action word. What Paul's telling us is the just or the justified person now begins to live by faith. Right? I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul says in Galatians. So it's been said, we've said it here, that while justification is like being born, sanctification is like staying alive. Justification is when we receive a new nature and are born again. Sanctification is living the new life. One is the work of an instant, the other is the work of a lifetime. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. Live is an action word. Once a person has been justified, that person begins living a new life in Christ by faith. That's that life of sanctification. And in that new life, it is through studying and following the word that we grow. Turn, to me, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. After Hebrews, you have James, and you come to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, Peter tells us as newborn babes, we're newborns, we've been born again, right? As newborn babes desire the pure milk of what? Okay, why does a baby drink milk? To grow. You need to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So he makes that spiritual application. That is the word, the study of the word, the application of the word. Just reading the word and not doing the word doesn't do anything. I won't say it doesn't do anything, but it's the application. It changes. We grow by the study of the Word. Notice this statement by Ellen White. This is found in the SDA book, uh, Bible commentary, but this is her statement. Bible sanctification is to know the requirements of God and obey them. Now, you can almost read that and say, but that just sounds super legalistic. Like, just obey. But it's predicated on justification, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Again, from Acts of the Apostles 560, sanctification is the result of lifelong obedience. So the point we need to understand is the process of sanctification includes obedience. It has to have obedience. Our obedience is in there. That's, that's the sanctification process. Having said that, it must be clear that even though sanctification involves our obedience, it is still entirely the work of God. Amen. Just because I make choices, it's not my righteousness plus his righteousness. That would, that would be, <laughs> you know, it's like in math. I mean, zero times anything, right? It's zero. <laughs> it's God's righteousness. Once you put mine in there, guess what it is? Zero. Confused ideas of sanctification have led many to a hopeless outlook in their Christian life. They've been taught or assumed that justification is what God does for us, but that sanctification is what we do for ourselves. That justification gives us a title to heaven, but if I'm unable to make myself fit for heaven through sanctification, I'll be lost. I know as a pastor, that's a reality. I hear it all the time. People get the idea like, okay, sanctification, that's just... And when you talk, when you preach, when if I preach a sermon about being more faithful, people come up after and say, I'm discouraged now. Because you talked about being... I can't be that faithful. It's not about you. It's about keeping that focus on Jesus. Notice Ellen White comments on this. She says, many have an idea that they must do some part of the work. What? Now, what if I took a loan out? Is that true? We do have to do some part of the work. Why is that? If I had to do none of the work, let me ask you a question. Would God be infringing on my choice? Folks, if I didn't have to do anything, 
then that would be God forcing me, which we always say in the great controversy, he won't do. I mean, he's gonna, he'll do everything but choose. But my choice involves my response. Many have an idea that they do, must do some part of the work alone. They've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, but now they seek by their own efforts to live aright. But every such effort, what? Must fail. Must fail. Jesus says, without me, ye can do nothing. Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness, all depend upon our union with Christ. It is by communing with Him daily, hourly, by abiding in Him that we are to grow in grace. He is not only the author, but the what? That's a fantastic... What a fantastic... Of course, she's commenting on Hebrews 12. Jesus is not just the author. There are a lot of Christians who treat Jesus like He's just the author of our faith. And now you go and be faithful. He is the finisher. It is Christ first and last and always. What does that mean? Where does that put him in the process? All the way through. He is to be with us not only at the beginning and the end of the course, but at every step of the way. So to illustrate, for a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, this is what it looks like. When I accept Christ at conversion, justification covers the sins that are past. But now I'm on my own from here forward. Justification is then... That's my past, and it's done away, and it's covered up by Christ and all my growth. But from now on, sanctification is all on me. Ellen White just clearly refuted that. The Bible refutes that. This is what it looks like. Justification, as we learned yesterday, is when we receive Christ and He begins to live in us. A pastor asked me this question once. He says, how is it in the investigative judgment? You know, the Bible says that when we're forgiven, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. God forgets them. Right? So how is it in the judgment that if we, if, if we don't pass the judgment, our sins come on us and we got to pay Him at the end of time? Like if I accepted Christ, they're supposed to be in the depths of the sea. Nobody can find Him. Let me be very clear. This is, and I to, this is what I told that pastor. And this is what we need to understand. When I accept Jesus, why are my sins forgiven? Jesus covered them. We have all these cliches and say, what does that mean? I don't know what it means. The reason I'm forgiven is because I'm gone. Like if, if you've got a guy in the court, the, the, the judge says he's worthy of death, and the death penalty is paid, and he's gone, what more claim does the law have on him? When I accept Christ, I cease to exist. Isn't that what Paul says? I am crucified with Christ. I'm dead with Christ. I'm gone. The old me is buried. And now what? Now what is seen? Christ lives in me. Well, what does the law have to condemn me of? Nothing. Because now the life I live is a life of Christ, past, present, and future. I have the person of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. That's what makes me righteous. And that's why I can go forward through the process of sanctification, because now I'm a partaker of the divine nature. Without that, I could never go forward in obedience. But because I'm going forward in obedience doesn't mean I lost justification. I know scholars in the Adventist Church say, well, if you believe that you've got to obey and be sanctified, that means you don't think you need the righteousness of Christ anymore. Then how am I going to obey? The idea of justification is that's receiving Christ, receiving the righteousness of Christ in the person of Christ. Does that make sense? So this is, yeah, this is how it works right here. Justification is the receiving of the indwelling Christ by faith. That's what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. What Paul meant when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. Christ lives in me. Sanctification is predicated on the experience of justification. And when you realize that, see, here's the important part. Our, when we talk about justification, we're talking about our standing with God. When we're justified, God sees us as He sees His Son. For too many Seventh-day Adventists, we have put that on sanctification. Are, are, are you, do you have confidence in it? Oh, I don't know. Are you going to make it? I hope I'm going to make it. I sure, I'm not sure. Because they, they, I'm still growing. You know, there's this mindset that if I don't do good enough now, God won't accept me. 
God already accepted you back at justification. That's our standing with God. The process of sanctification is not about our standing with God. It's about our growth with God. You understand? And that makes a huge difference. If you're doing it on your own, that's discouraging. But when Christ is there by your side, giving you the strength and taking you along, it's a whole different story. And that's the biblical concept of sanctification. Ellen White says it is the work of conversion and sanctification to reconcile men to God by bringing them into accord with the principles of his law. Notice how she ties the conversion in there. You've got justification and sanctification. The followers of Christ are to become like him by the grace of God to form characters in harmony with the principles of his holy law. This is Bible sanctification. Notice, this work can be accomplished only through faith in Christ, by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. You're not on your own in your Christian life. And listen, saints, I know you feel like it. That's why we walk by faith, not by sight. I experience as a pastor those times when it feels like I'm working alone. It feels like I'm going backwards instead of forwards. But by faith, I look to Jesus and I say, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And I can trust in that. That's where my... Com- if, you, if you're watching your progress in the work of sanctification, you're going to be discouraged. You've got your eyes in the wrong place. And I've challenged people, and perhaps you've heard me challenge people before to say, for example, I challenge you right now. You can go out, take this, take this tree. See this lovely tree over here out the window, right up there on the hill? Take a chair this afternoon and go out and sit under that tree and see if you can watch it grow. And then and, and come back tomorrow and tell me what you found. Now, I'm not talking about the leaves, but I want to say growth. Do you see growth in that tree? You're going to be like, no, I didn't see anything. It just sat there. And my question to you is, is it growing? Listen to me. Just because you don't see growth, especially in yourself, you're the last person. How many times have you noticed that you're measuring your kids and every periodically you go and you put a mark, but you don't see it until you put the mark there, but your neighbors come or the aunt and uncle comes and says, my, he's grown so big, because they're seeing the difference over a period of time. My point is, just because you don't see growth does not mean growth isn't taking place. It's a mistake to look at yourself and evaluate growth. You've got to look to Jesus and trust him. Yes, sir. Um, it's, it's easy to get an idea that the fitness for heaven is all about us uh, in our standing with the Lord. Mm-hmm. But isn't sanctification a bit more than that? How do you mean? Well, I was thinking of in First Peter, um, he, he talks about, uh, but you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is uh, First Peter two, verse nine. And I'm not, this, I just just looked down a little. Yep. There's probably better examples, but it says you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So I think that we are representatives of the kingdom of heaven on this on this planet. So that our sanctification isn't for our own benefit, but it's oh, absolutely. We'll, we'll touch on that a little tomorrow. And if we had another week, man, we'd touch on all kinds of stuff. But that's, a, that's an excellent point. Yeah, the sanctification is not just for us, but we sure benefit from it. <laughs> um, so anyway, she says that this work and this is the point I want us to see, this, the, the work of sanctification is no different from justification in that it has to be done by God. It's a work of God, not just a work of us. Now, I'm going to have to hold questions, and we'll never get done. And I'll take this one, and then we're going to move on. I was just going to say, if we are modeling that our eyes are fixed on Christ, we're encouraging our brother to do the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Good point. So, <clears throat> in addition to this, let's not forget Joan's definition of faith that we looked at yesterday. Faith is expecting the Word of God to do what it says and the depending upon that Word to do what it says. And the Bible tells us that the will of God is our sanctification among so many many other places in the Word. God has promised justification and sanctification. Do we believe He can do it? Expecting the Word of God to do what it says. Now, 
This is where we get into a little bit of the, well, it's an important part, and maybe a sticky part, and this is, we're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I want you to notice the expression the apostle uses here. He also uses it elsewhere, but we're going to pick it up from this place. He's talking to Timothy, of course, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse, we'll start in verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight of faith. The life of faith is the fight of faith. I have met many Christians who seem to get the idea that justification by faith means there's no more fight. It's just going to be natural. You're just, in fact, they'll even quote statements like Ellen White, where she, by Ellen White, where she says things like, when a person really realizes the love of Christ, then they're going to, they're going to produce good works like as, as easily as the vine yields its tender clusters. And that's true. When you become a Christian, God puts in you a desire for spiritual things that was never there. I was not always a Christian. When I became a Christian, suddenly I had a love for righteousness. But there's a problem, you see. We're born in this world with one nature, a sinful one. Praise God we can be born again with a new nature. But the new nature does not take away the old nature. And so now you have two natures, and they fight. And you know the fight. Anybody who lives the Christian life knows the fight. It's the fight I was sharing, I think it was yesterday afternoon, in our class. We were talking about, you know, when we, we can talk all about theology, but I'm going to tell you the biggest test I know as somebody who works in personal ministries is you get up in front of the church and say, you preach whatever rousing sermon and the saints are all with you and say, this afternoon we're going to get together and we're going to go on outreach and witness about Jesus. And all of a sudden, crickets, right? Then you get five people in the afternoon because you're sitting in the easy chair at home or you're sitting around the table with your friends and you're like, Oh, I don't know, I probably should go, but... And there's a struggle. And oh, that it would be that we would always just delight to do the right thing. But the fact of the matter is, there's a part of us who wants to do the wrong thing. And this is what the Apostle Paul means in Romans 7 when he talks about this struggle. The good that I want to do, I'm not doing. Now he gives a solution in Romans 8. Life in the Spirit. And I think too many Adventists pitch their tents in Romans 7 and never get into Romans 8 experience. Because Christ is greater than that. But there is a struggle. The reason that Ford's theology was so popular, the reason he came up with it, the reason the evangelical pop, the reason for the, the justification declaration only, we talked about yesterday, the reason that takes off is because it offers Christians an avenue to say, you know what, I'm so sinful and weak, I'm never going to be anything but what I am, but praise God, I can stand and I'm saved now, I'm saved in Jesus, and I don't have to wrestle in my Christian life. That's really the reality of it. I, I, when I talk about, in fact, I know Seventh-day Adventists who have a hard time, and listen to me carefully, because of their understanding of what they think is righteousness by faith, they have a hard time with Ellen White's writings. Because she's all, she has all these do's and don'ts, and how can you... And some of them try to explain it away by saying, well, she changed her theology after 1888, and so that early stuff in the testimonies doesn't have, she wasn't focused. Right. Man, if you've got to start doing that with inspired writings, maybe you ought to question your interpretation of righteousness by faith. I don't have to do that with inspired writings, with my understanding of righteousness by faith. I understand what she meant. And if you go back to her earliest writings, and she talks about striving and fighting, you'll never find her talking about doing it apart from Christ. You'll never find that. It's always through the grace of Christ. There is a, strike, a, a, a battle that goes on. Notice this statement from Acts of the Apostles 5.31. Ellen White says, Day by day, God labors for man's sanctification. Did you know that? Who's working for your sanctification day by day? God is. Amen. And man is to cooperate with him, putting forth what kind of effort? Persevering efforts in the cultivation of right habits. Look, if you had a lifetime of wrong habits, they don't go away in a day, do they? But here's the good news, and I think I shared, maybe it was this class, maybe it was another class. 
that I preached an evangelistic series and I had a dear old saint come out to that. Well, she, this lady was not, uh, she had not been a Christian actually. Came to the meetings, she had been smoking for 61 years. 11 years old, did I tell you this story? And after 61 years, and, and, and we had a stop smoking class, and she came to the first night and stopped coming. And I thought, oh, I was so discouraged. I thought, you know what, I would have loved to see her get the victory. Elder Royce, 71 years old, uh, 72 years old, smoking since she was 11. I visited her a few days later, I asked her how it was going, I said, yeah, so the class didn't work out for you. Oh, she said, no, she said, all I need to do is go to the first one. I knew I needed to quit and I, I'm done. She says, I haven't smoked since. I said, have you not tried before? She said, I tried a lot of times before, but she said, when I realized that something God wanted me to do, he gave me the strength to do it, and I'm not smoking. And she never smoked again. I mean, that's day by day God's working. Yes, we put forth persevering efforts, but they're not fruitless. How many of you have heard the term burnout? Job burnout, and, and probably have experienced it to some level. I want to make something clear to you about burnout that a lot of people don't realize. Burnout does not come from overwork. Are you aware of that? Burnout comes from lack of results. When you are getting the results you want, have you ever been working hard at a project but it's coming out the way you want to? What does that do? That motivates you, right? Burnout doesn't come because you work hard. Burnout comes because you're not seeing results. A lot of Christians think they have burnout, but the reality is your persevering efforts may be going nowhere because you're laboring in the wrong way. Not looking to and trusting in the righteousness of Christ, but looking at how far you think you've come and then you're discouraged. But she says very clearly, there need to be persevering efforts. Notice she describes Paul of all people, the Apostle Paul, right? Who wrote all this wonderful stuff about justification. But what was his experience like? She says Paul's sanctification was a result of a constant conflict with self. I die daily, he said. Well, he did say that, didn't he? His will and his desires every day conflicted with duty and the will of God. Duty's not even a good word anymore. Duty's like, oh, that's all you. But notice, there was a sense of duty, but his will conflicted. What did he do? Instead of following inclination. You know what inclination is? To incline means to lean. It's what you lean towards. It's what's comfortable, what's easy. Instead of following inclination, he did God's will, however crucifying to his own nature. Does that sound like doing God's will was easy for Paul? It was a fight, but he gained the victory in that fight, and we can gain the victory in that fight. It's the fight of faith. Ellen White says here, he who determines to enter the spiritual kingdom will find that all the powers and passions of an unregenerate, an unconverted nature, our old nature, backed by the forces of the kingdom of darkness, as if it's not bad enough that I've got a fallen nature that fights me, the devil and his angels are both boosting up that fallen nature. (laughs) And he who determines to enter the spiritual kingdom is going to find all that against him. Oops. All that against him. Selfishness and pride will make a stand against anything that would show show them to be sinful. We cannot of ourselves conquer the evil desires and habits that strive for the mastery. We cannot overcome the mighty foe who holds us in his thrall. God alone can give us the victory. He desires us to have the mastery over ourselves. Now, folks, if God desires us to be victors, then we will be victors. It it doesn't matter what the outlook is like. It doesn't matter if I don't see the progress I want to see today. God wants me to be a victor, and I will be. By faith, I've got to focus on that. But he cannot work in us without our consent and cooperation. He's not going to force us. That's all it's telling us. It's like the person who said, I'll overcome appetite when God takes that cookie out of my hand. (laughs) No, God's going to give you strength to not get into the package of cookies. The divine spirit works through the faculties and powers given to man. Our energies are required to cooperate with God. But they're not meritorious. This is not about my standing with Christ. He's already accepted me. I'm already on his team, and now he's with me, working out his righteousness in me. And make no mistake, when I say working out his righteousness in me, it still will always be his righteousness. It's like, uh, now it's worked out in me, and now it's my righteousness. It's always his. He's just teaching me how to yield to it 
all the time instead of part of the time. Thoughts and Mental Blessing, page 141. Uh, from Ministry of Healing, Ellen White says, Day by day and year by year, we shall conquer self and grow into noble heroism. Notice that. It's a process. It takes time. And if you get hung up on it's taking too long, it's going to discourage you. Don't worry about how it's... Just keep following Jesus and day by day working with Him. I read a statement just recently about the life of Jacob, and it was fascinating to me. In Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White says, you know, Jacob didn't make all the right decisions, but he trusted in the Lord. And Ellen White makes this statement. She says, God allowed Jacob's sin to work its own correction. And I thought, so here he's blatantly done the wrong thing, because here's where we go. We say, okay, I'm in the sanctification process, and I'm choosing, but sometimes I don't choose to follow Jesus, and then I do the wrong thing, and then he gives up on me for sure, doesn't he? And so that statement, I thought, God saw Jacob was making the wrong decision, but he knew his heart was right, he knew his intention to follow him, and he allowed those consequences. Have you ever had the consequences work themselves out in your life and teach you lessons? The point is this, God is with you, he's on your side in this process, you're not alone. And Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. Day by day and year by year we shall conquer self and grow into noble heroism. This is our allotted task, but it can't be accomplished without help from Jesus. Resolute decision, unwavering purpose, continual watchfulness, and unceasing prayer. Each one has what kind of battle? A personal battle to fight. Nobody else can fight your battles. I mean, the Lord will be with you in your battle, but it still has to be your choice. Notice, not even God can make our characters noble or our lives useful unless we become co-workers with Him. And this last sentence, those who decline the struggle lose the what? The strength and joy of victory. You can't win the game from the sidelines. Now, you can sit and worry on the sidelines, say, I can't, I'm not going to get in the game because I'm afraid I'll never win. And you'll never gain the experience of victory. God says, get in the game, struggle, fight, and I'll, let, I'll lead you to a victory. Amen? Amen? That is the promise of God to you and me. Elder Royce is going to come up and talk about victory in Jesus. I told him he gets the fun part. He gets to be the nice guy at the end. <laughs> And I appreciate that, Brother, Brother Mark. Thank you so much. You know, this can be overwhelming. As we're trying to process all of this and sort out the confusion that seems to be there. But the Bible, again, is clear. I think of Enoch and the expression, he walked with God. You know, you, you think about his daily experience, walking day after day with God. You know, you can't help but become friends with someone that you keep walking with and talking with and hiking. If there's somebody you've never uh, had a connection with, but you go on a backpacking trip with them and you hike through the Appalachian Mountains or or, you know, something like that, and, you, and you're out there for several weeks, you're going to know more about that person than you did before you started that journey. And with Jesus, if you're walking with Him every day, He's the one who is ministering to you all along the way. Three and a half years, the disciples walked with Jesus, literally walked with Jesus. And still Peter had some trouble along the way, didn't he? Because part of the correction experience wasn't, hadn't done its work yet. And along with the journey, Jesus was patient. He was patient with Peter. He's patient with us. Along the way, we make mistakes, and he does a little bit of correction here and there. But part of our challenge is that we're used to failure and not to victory. And we focus on that failure instead of realizing that with Jesus, He wants us to have mastery. He wants us to have the victory. And He wants us to be able to focus on what He wants to provide for us. I want to leave you today with two quotations, one from Wagner and one from Jones. As you look at these, these are individuals who are seeking to put into words 
that, that personal journey. Hopefully these will be of help to you. First one is from Wagner in that UK version that we referred to uh, yesterday or day before. Uh, the book, uh, the um, uh, version of the magazine, The Present Truth, November 5, 1891. Yeah, I've got to change it so you can see it. Yeah, there it is. All right, this is what he said. Thank you, Mark. Some folks look with dread upon the thought of having to wage a continual warfare with self and worldly lusts. That is because they do not yet know anything but the joy about the joy of victory. They have experienced only defeat. But it isn't so doleful a thing, whoops, but it isn't so doleful a thing to battle constantly when there is continual victory. Listen to his thinking and his words. He goes on and he says, The old veteran of a hundred battles who has been victorious in every fight longs to be at the scene of conflict. Alexander's soldiers, who under his command never knew defeat, were always impatient to be led into the fray. Each victory increased their strength, which was born only of courage and correspondingly diminished that of the vanquished foe. How often does a soldier who is beaten down, beaten down, beaten down, want to continue to fight? But how often does a soldier want to fight when they experience nothing but victory? Now let's not get into the, the bloody fighting of war that we have in this day and age, but let's think of the fact that the old, as we go through this, and when it is decided and constantly made, whoa, I think it jumped on me. The soldiers of Alexander were reckoned invincible. Why? Was it because they were naturally strong and more courageous than all their enemies? No, but because they were led by Alexander. The general knew how to fight the battle against the enemy in such a way as to gain victory all the time. Jesus knows how to gain the victory all the time. So when you're, when you're walking with the one who has never failed, you know that victory is assured. But you can't just sit there and say, now Jesus, do it. I'm, I'm out of here. It's all right. No, he's, he is walking with you in the journey. There's no joy in watching somebody else do all the work. Now, let me understand what I mean by that. Not the works of salvation, but experiencing what God wants us to. Jones puts it this way in Lessons on Faith uh, in the chapter entitled Sinful Flesh, and this is what he says. And when it is decided... Did it jump at me again? When it is decided and constantly maintained that the flesh of the converted person is still sinful flesh and only sinful flesh. He is so thoroughly convinced that in his flesh dwells no good thing that he will never allow a shadow of confidence in the flesh. And this being so, his sole dependence is upon something other than the flesh, even upon the Holy Spirit of God. His source of strength and hope is altogether exclusive of the flesh even in Jesus Christ only, and being everlastingly watchful, suspicious, and thoroughly distrustful of the flesh, he can never can expect any good thing from that source. That's a good thing. There isn't any good thing coming out of the flesh. It's all coming from the Spirit of God, right? And so is prepared by the power of God to beat back and crush down without mercy every impulse or suggestion that may arise from it. And so does not fail, does not become discouraged, but goes on from what? Victory to victory and from strength to strength. Conversion then, you see, does not put new flesh upon the old spirit 
but a new spirit within the old flesh. It does not propose to bring new flesh to the old mind, but a new mind to the old flesh. Conversion. Deliverance and victory are not gained by having the human nature taken away, but by receiving the divine nature to subdue and have dominion over the human. Not by the taking away of the sinful flesh, but by the, uh, the sending in of the sinless spirit to conquer and condemn sin in the flesh. Okay, I'm pushing this thing and it's resisting me and I'm not sure why. There we go. Do not be discouraged at sight of sinfulness, at sight of sinfulness in the flesh. It is only in the light of the Spirit of God and by the discernment of the mind of Christ that you can see so much sinfulness in your flesh. And the more sinfulness you see in your flesh, the more of the Spirit of God you certainly have. This is a sure test. The closer we come to Christ, the more we hate seeing the flesh in ourselves, the more we hate what we see in the world around us, is more of the evidence that the Spirit of God is working with us and building that enmity that God promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 into us that He wants us to have. This is all good news. When you're feeling the worst, is when you're beginning to realize that you do have a problem, but you have a solution in Jesus because he's helping you to know there is a problem, but he doesn't leave you discouraged there. He wants you to have the courage that he wants to give you. When sinfulness abounds, grace much more abounds in order that as... This thing is misbehaving on me. Is it me or is it it? This is it? Am I in the right place? Then when you see sinfulness abundant in you, thank the Lord that you have so much of the Spirit of God that you can see so much of the sinful, sinfulness and know of a surety that when sinfulness abounds, grace much more abounds in order that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace, might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Ellen White when she's talking about the last days, she's talking about that time when we having to go through Jacob's trouble experience. She makes it clear to us that because we've surrendered to Jesus, we do not have to fear. But during that time, it feels like we have nothing to give, and Satan is pressing in upon us that we are nothing but sinners and Jesus can't save us. Our hope in that time is the fact that we have confessed our sins to Jesus, and it's all in his hands. And then he takes us through to the end. When we see it being the worst, when Jesus was revealing us to us what we really are, remember he's standing right by your side and mine and saying, you can't, but I have, and you will, and you are experiencing by feeling, by faith the victory that he has promised us. Tomorrow we're going to go into the last phase of this that connects us with the sanctuary, the role of the sanctuary and the work of Jesus Christ and what he wants us to understand about this life that we're living in now. Today, go out. Don't look at your failures. Look at Jesus, your source of victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how grateful for the message of righteousness, not by works, but by faith. Faith in Christ, our righteousness. Because Jesus gained the victory, 
our victory is assured, not because we suddenly become victorious, but because we become more dependent on Him who is our victory. As we go from here today, help us to focus on Jesus, the source of our victory, in whose name we pray. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.